What does it really mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Confusion or faulty beliefs on this point will result in nothing more than pain and relational carnage. Christians must submit their understanding of love to God's revealed word. Love is not a feeling. Love is not tolerance or acceptance or ambivalence. Love is not merely romance. Love is a universe-altering choice to want and work toward God's best interests for the people in our lives, whether they want it or not, because that's how God loves us. The one true God of the universe has existed since eternity past in ultimate perfection. He spoke the cosmos into existence for his soul, honor, and glory. He moved heaven and earth to redeem mankind, even though we have nothing to offer him. And he's given us everything we need for life and godliness in his word. He deserves our worship. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our praise. I'm your host, A.M. Brucer, and this is the Celebration of God. Welcome to the final episode of our Evidence of Spiritual Life series, where we have been looking for these evidences in our lives. If we haven't easily found them, that may have meant that we didn't possess spiritual life in the first place, or it represents the next step in our spiritual maturity. I know that there isn't enough time in a podcast episode to truly give these topics the scope and detail that is required, but I pray that you have been able to truly step back and look at your life in an honest biblical way. If you are truly born again by the Holy Spirit into Christ and an eternal relationship with God the Father, then these evidences will be in your life, and they will be growing. That's so important to realize. We must not allow ourselves to believe the lie that spiritual life stagnates, plateaus, or slips backward. No, spiritual life is sanctification from one degree of glory to another as we're conformed to the image of Christ. All right, before moving on, I want to remind you that if you use Amazon to do your shopping, you can visit truthloveparent.com and use any of our Amazon affiliate links to get to the website. If you use one of our links, most of what you purchase will result in Amazon paying us a commission. You pay the same price you always would, and Evermind benefits from it. And also be sure to check out celebrationofgod.com to sign up for our new Evermind app, as well as access our episode notes, transcript, and life resources from our blog. And with that, let's try to tackle the amazing, overwhelming, massive, and eternally important topic called love. Let's start by reading 2 Peter 1, 5-7. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Number one, an intro to love. As I said earlier, we're not going to be able to do much more than scratch the surface of this topic, so what I hope this does is that a truly born-again believer who is growing in their knowledge of God and the Bible should want to continue their study. This episode should whet your appetite and cause you to want to dive deeper into this gorgeous truth. Also, please understand that the world has no idea what love is, and a spiritually dead person cannot exercise the love that we're going to describe today. The best the world can do through common grace is a fleshly, self-focused affection that does not accomplish the purposes of God. This is a warning on three levels. Letter A. As a child of God, your definition of love needs to be God's definition. Letter B. If the best love you have has more in common with the world than it does the Bible, that may very well be of an evidence of the fact that you don't have spiritual life. And letter C, if you do have genuine biblical love in your life, it must be ever maturing, moving further and further away from the fleshly version to the God love the Lord pours into our lives. 
Also by way of introduction, of the eight Greek words we've been studying in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, the words translated moral excellence appear in the New Testament five times. Knowledge, 29 times. Self-control, four times. Perseverance, 32 times. Godliness, 15 times. And brotherly kindness, six times. However, the Greek word for faith is used 243 times in the New Testament. Given the absolutely foundational nature of faith, this makes perfect sense. But the word translated love in 2 Peter 1.7 shows up an amazing 115 times, and other forms of the same word show up another 200-some times. It's clear that Peter bookends the trajectory of Christian maturity with the weightiest character traits known to man, faith and love. Faith is how we enter into a relationship with God, and love is the warp and woof of that relationship. The two greatest commands are to love the Lord and love your neighbor because all the other commands of Scripture hang off these two. Faith is the root, and love is the necessary fruit. Last week, we looked at the importance of redemptive relationships, deep, connected, familial discipleship that results in the joint maturity of each in the relationship. But this week, we're going to consider the personal responsibility of Christian love that exists even when others do not reciprocate our love. This love is the most mature, the most godly, and is the goal toward which all God's people should be growing. There is so much to be learned concerning this topic because it touches every area of life, but we're going to have to limit our study today to four main concepts, the source, necessity, character, and recipients of true love. So number two, the source of true love. True love originates in God, flows from God, and is to return back to God. A, true love finds its existence in God. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. I believe this description is important lest we come to the wrong conclusion that love, as we know it, is something achieved or exercised by God. No, true love is intrinsically woven into the very character of God to the degree that the Bible says that God is love. B. Humans can experience true love only as they access it in God. 1 John 4.19 reads, We love because He first loved us. If we have not first been loved by God, we cannot love others. And no, the fact that God so loved the world does not mean that the whole world can exercise the love of God. The love John is discussing here is the saving love of God in our lives. Yes, it can be argued that the world's ability to exercise a fleshly version of love is the result of God's love that pours His common grace out on them, but the love that is an evidence of spiritual life requires that we have first experienced God's love in spiritual life. Let us see. A godly life is the evidence of true love. 1 John 2.5, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. 2 John 1.6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandment. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Matthew 22.37-40, you shall love the Lord your God, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. A person who believes themselves to be loving, but who does not possess or is not growing in faith, moral excellence, knowledge, spirit control, perseverance, godliness, and brotherly kindness, is lying to themselves. They're not truly loving people. This means that an ungodly life is the evidence of not being able to truly love. In John 5, 39-43, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And 1 John 4, 20-21 reveals that if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. The source of love is God himself. Therefore, it's impossible to imagine that we will love the way he loves if we don't have new life in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit evidenced in the fact that we're living the life of God. What about you? Do you love because God has first loved you? Are you maturing in the spiritual disciplines and character of Christ? Number two, the necessity of true love. If we do not love the way God commands us to love, life will not work the way he intends it to work. To not love is to sin, and sin always brings destruction. But when we love God and everyone else in our lives, we will thrive as God originally intended. 1 Corinthians 13 is rightly known as the love chapter. We're going to look briefly at the rest of the chapter later, but for now we must consider just the introduction to the chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Letter A. According to verse 1, your communication will not work if the love of God is not alive in your life. Think of all of your communication during an average week. If you're anything like I, then it isn't hard to remember an example of communication that was worthless because you didn't love God and others the way you should. Letter B. According to verse 2, your religious expressions will not work if the love of God is not alive in your life. Consider the practical outworking of your faith during an average week. This can include all quote-unquote religious activities as well as personal acts of devotion, etc., once again, I'm sure for being honest, we can all give at least one example of a religious activity that was worthless because we didn't love God and others the way we should as we participated in it. Letter C. According to verse 3, your relationships will not work if the love of God is not alive in your life. Consider the plethora of relationships in your daily life. Can you think of an experience in a relationship where, even though you treated them well on the outside— it was empty because you weren't loving God and them the way you should on the inside. So the big three, your communication, your faith, and your relationships will all fail if you do not have true biblical love. If you don't learn anything else today, learn this. Life doesn't work without true love. I know that may sound like a song from the 60s or a cheesy motivational poster, but this is a biblical fact. Your life will absolutely not work in any meaningful way if you are not living it in God's love. Number three, the character of true love. Now, we're going to skim through 1 Corinthians 13 here. Don't shut down your brain because you're familiar with this passage. Please allow each character trait of love to shine its blinding rays into the hidden corners of your life. Grapple with these truths honestly and carefully. Don't just say, yeah, that's in my life. I'm good. A, love is patient. Verses 4 and 7 teach that love is patient and endures all things. With whom are you least patient? You're not loving that person the way you should. B. Love is kind. Verse 4 teaches that love is kind. The original word has the idea of showing oneself useful, and the adjectival form of this word means serviceable, good, or gracious. With whom are you the least useful? In what relationship is your participation not accomplishing God's will in that person's life? C. Love is humble. Verse 4 also teaches that love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
Humility is living with an other's motivation. Nothing is done with self as the end goal. So, with whom are you the least humble? In what relationships do you consider yourself before considering what's best for them? Well, in those relationships right there, you're not being loving. Letter D. Love is selfless. Verse 5 teaches that love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. There's a lot of overlap with this one and the one before it, but ask the question anyway. With whom are you the least selfless? Or with whom are you the most selfish? The answer is a person that you do not love. E. Love is holy. Verse 5 also teaches that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So, with whom are you the least holy? What relationships in your life either thrive off of sin or do not discuss and pursue the righteousness of God? Those are the relationships in your life that are the most hateful. Letter F. Love is strong. Verse 7 teaches that love bears all things and endures all things. With whom are you, let's say it this way, the weakest? We could ask it another way. Which relationships in your life tire you out the most? With which people do you think, I just can't handle them right now? Well, then those are the people you don't love the way you should. Letter G. Love is optimistic. Verse 7 also teaches that love believes all things and hopes all things. Love is not foolish, nor is it undiscerning, but since it knows the power of God, it recognizes that anything God expects is possible from anyone from whom he expects it. With whom are you the most pessimistic? Pessimism is not realism. Realism says that we can accomplish anything and everything God wants for us. To look at someone and think that they will never change or that they're hopeless is pessimism, and it's not love. Letter H. Love is eternal. Verse 7 goes on to teach that love endures all things, and verse 8 reveals that love never ends. True love is not capricious and wavering. So with whom are you the most inconsistent? What relationships in your life are on again, off again, not because of legitimate scheduling issues and the busyness of life, but because you don't consistently love them the way you should? Now, I know that these are hard questions, and I don't want you to think that failures in any of these categories mean that you're not born again. I think I've solidly explained that we will still sin on and off as long as we are in these unredeemed bodies. But there are two clear signs of a lack of spiritual life. First, a complete absence of God's love in our lives. And second, if we really have to contrive the love in our lives to fit into these categories, yeah, that's a problem. If you're trying to beat your square-shaped love into God's circle-shaped love, that needs to concern you. Now, if you thought that was hard, buckle up, because now we're going to look at the relationships where your love absolutely must mature. Number four, the recipients of true love. Who does God want you to love in the ways we just described? Are there people you don't have to love? These are vital questions we need to answer. Simply put, God commands us to love him, our neighbors, and we could call those those who love us, and our enemies, those who don't love us. There is no one that you're not allowed to love. We don't have time to read Luke 10, 25-37 and Matthew 5, 43-48. I strongly encourage you to do so, though, when you have the time. And when you're done reading them, ask yourself the following questions. In what ways do you find it hard to love God? Hey, let's be honest. We do. Every single time we sin against Him, we sin against Him because we don't love Him. So in what ways do you find it hard to love your neighbors? Again, we sin against them. And in what ways do you find it hard to love your enemies? It really shouldn't be too hard to answer those questions. And it never ceases to amaze me how easy it is for us to justify hating people. Now, when I say hate, I'm talking about not loving them the way God loves them. That's what hate is. 
Even the selfish, fleshly love of the world is biblical hatred because it's working at cross-purposes with God. How can I say that? Well, here's my favorite definition of biblical love. True love flows from a relationship with Christ, whereby it's empowered to want and to work toward God's greatest good for the one loved, regardless of how they treat you. What's interesting about that is that each of those ideas is the same arena in which we justify not loving others. When I ask people why they don't love someone in their lives, these are the kinds of answers I receive, even in marriages. I don't want to. I believe God wants me to treat them this way. Or have you seen how they treat me? My friends, it doesn't matter. If you are truly born again, you're not going to love perfectly, but you absolutely need to be growing in your love for everyone in your life, not making excuses for the times you don't. Now, that was a much more superficial overview than I would have liked, but it's the extent we can cover right now. Listen, my friends, if you are not wanting and working toward God's best interest in the life of the people around you, you are not a disciple of Christ. That's what Jesus himself said. People are going to know you're his disciple. Why? Because you love the way he loved. So, though none of this, uh, none of us will be able to love perfectly, I've already said that, that means that those of us who have spiritual life absolutely must be maturing in it. We have to love our friends and our neighbors and our family and our pastors and those really annoying people at church and even our enemies. We need to love them the exact same way that the Father loves the Son. No excuses, no plateauing, no going back. Now, we don't have the time to schedule one more episode to put a concluding bow on this series, so I want to take our last few minutes to do that now. Number five, your spiritual maturity from spiritual life to physical death. 2 Peter 1, 1 1-15 is a gloriously concise explanation of how a Christian is to grow in his or her maturity. Peter starts in verse 1, introducing himself this way, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Though none of us are apostles, it's important that we understand that if Peter were a bondservant of Christ, we are too. Peter then addresses his readers and explains that he is writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Spiritual growth cannot occur if there isn't first spiritual life, and spiritual life comes as a result of the gift of faith that comes from our righteous God. Verse 2 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. After we have been born again into a relationship with God, we are recipients of the multiplied grace and peace that is ours in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. But what is the goal of that grace and peace? Verse 3 tells us that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Praise the Lord that He gives us access to everything we need for life and godliness. And praise God that He tells us exactly where to find everything we need. We discover it in the knowledge of Christ. Only as we learn, understand, and live in the knowledge of God can we access faith, peace, and grace, and thereby grow in godliness. But where do we find the knowledge of God? Is it revealed in nature? Do we learn it in dreams? Do we rely on holy men to tell it to us? No, it comes through God's revealed word, the Bible. Verse 4 then explains, By his own glory and excellence he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. It's through God's glory and excellence that we receive the precious and magnificent promises that God gives to everyone who was born again. And what are those promises? Whereas previously we were corrupted by the world and our lusts, we now have everything we need to grow in grace and peace, that is, spiritual maturity. And that's why verse 5 begins, For this very reason also, applying all diligence. 
because Christians are bond servants of God and because he has given us faith, grace, and peace that come through not knowing him and which results in life and godliness, we obviously must be growing. But it's not something that's just going to, quote-unquote, happen to us. We must apply all diligence to the process. Diligence is an earnest, urgent effort. It carries the idea of something being done in haste. Not sloppily or partially, but passionately in order to be sure the action happens in a timely manner. To all of you listening to my voice today, who are, without a doubt, servants of Jesus, who have been given faith by our righteous God, know that grace and peace are being poured on you in the knowledge of Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, since God designs to use that knowledge to provide everything you need for life and godliness. That is the ultimate goal for which he has chosen you. His glory and excellence has granted to you the precious and magnificent promises that you no longer should live in the corruption of your former lusts, but that you should become a partaker of his divine nature. Since God has given you everything you need to achieve his greatest goal in your life, conformity to his holiness, work diligently to grow in Christlikeness. So here's the question for you today. Do you believe that this is a non-negotiable requirement for your life? If your answer is no, then you're not believing what God's word abundantly commands and illustrates. But if you say yes, yet your life isn't the exemplary fulfillment of what you say you believe, then there's a very good chance that your wicked heart is deceiving you. Or it might be. It's easy to say we believe something, but if we're not living in conformity to what we say we believe, it's really just a lie. So here's a follow-up question. Have your thoughts, words, and actions today exhibited a moral excellence that only a Christian can have in the power of God? If yes, that's wonderful. Praise the Lord. If no, what does your lack of moral excellence reveal about your faith in God? That's an important question. In order to grow in your excellence, you will need to study God's word in order to learn what is righteous, what is wicked, what needs to be pursued, and one that needs to be put off. So which of the following descriptions best encapsulates your interaction with the knowledge of God? One, casual, occasional reading. Maybe two, consistent, thoughtful reading. Three, involved study across various cross-references. How about four? Immersive study involving word studies and additional study aids. This is going to reveal exactly how seriously you're pursuing spiritual maturity. So, then as you learn how God would have you live, you need to exercise spirit-filled self-control to only do those things that please Him and reject those things that steal His glory. Now, consider this scary question. If those who know you best selected a description of your level of self-control, which would they choose? Would they say you lack self-control? You frequently think, say, and do things you shouldn't think, say, and do? Number two, you have self-control, but it's not inherently spiritual. Unbelievers exhibit the same level of self-control that you do. Or would they say that your self-control is deeply rooted in God's expectations for your life? As you consistently participate in your sanctification by trusting God's word to the degree that you deny your flesh and submit to the spirit and thereby grow in your moral excellence, you will persevere steadfastly in greater and greater consistency. So, since we started this series two months ago, in which spiritual disciplines can you honestly say you are maturing? I'll give you time to think. If you're having a hard time thinking of one that has shown a marked change in your life, that may be an issue. But as you consistently participate in your sanctification by trusting God's word to the degree that you deny your flesh and submit to the spirit and thereby grow in your moral excellence, you will persevere steadfastly in greater and greater consistency. The more consistently you choose God's will for your life and reject your own, you will become more and more godly. So on a scale from 1 to 100, 1 being low and 100 being perfect, how godlike in character, aka godly, 
are you compared to what you know about God's expectations? Well, this transformation into the character and behavior of the Lord Jesus Christ will drive you to build redemptive, discipleship relationships with other believers. How would those who know you best describe you? Selfish and unloving? Distant and standoffish? Friendly but superficial? Quick to give help, but avoids receiving help? Someone who invests a lot relationally, but avoids spiritual engagement? Or someone who consistently leads the people in your life into a deeper relationship with Christ? Because of your conformity to Christ, you will continue to multiply in the greatest of all these divine attributes, true Christ-honoring love. You will want and work toward God's best for everyone in your life, God, friends, enemies, strangers, whether they want you to or not. Now, in conclusion, after outlining the trajectory of spirit-filled, Christ-honoring spiritual growth, Peter gives the following instruction starting in verse 8. For if these qualities, the ones we've been studying for the past two months— are yours and are increasing. Ooh, there's the key. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. No one likes to consider themselves useless, but in order to truly be useful in God's economy, you must possess these evidences of spiritual life and be maturing, increasing in them. Continuing in verse 9, we read, For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Regardless of the character traits in which you struggle the most, you aren't flourishing in them because in one way or another, you are not seeing God, the resources he provides you, his plan, and or the life for which he saved you. And then in verse 10, we read, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Once again, Peter, under the inspiration of God, is commanding you to be diligent to grow in Christ-likeness. And then Peter makes a truly disturbing claim. He says that your saving relationship with God, or lack thereof, is going to be evidently seen in whether or not you possess and are growing in faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. The existence of true salvation will always be seen in a person's life, specifically in those categories. And then Peter ends his thought by saying, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind." Peter's highest calling on this earth was to always be ready to vigorously remind the people in his life of these truths, even though they already knew them and were established in them. In fact, he was so committed to the task of diligently keeping these truths ever before his fellow disciples' eyes that he was confident that after he died, his fellow disciples would be able to easily remember them on his own. Peter was a servant of Christ, just like you are. Peter was a born-again believer and a recipient of God's transforming grace, just like you may profess to be. Peter was responsible to God to be engaged in spiritually profitable, redemptive relationships, just like you are. So there are two more important questions to consider. Number one, who is repeatedly, consistently, and diligently reminding you and challenging you in your spiritual growth? And two, who are you repeatedly, consistently, and diligently reminding and challenging in their spiritual growth? I hope you have names that you can honestly attach to those questions. 
I suppose, if nothing else, that's what we at the year-long celebration of God want to be for you. We want to continue reminding you, sharpening you, and equipping you. But we also recognize our limitations. We function best as the creators of the material and instruction through which you work with other people, whether they're discipling you, you're discipling them, or it's mutual. You really need to have your local community of born-again followers of Christ doing life-on-life discipleship with you. Well, we made it. Praise God for giving us everything we need for life and godliness in His Word. We pray that this series has challenged and equipped you and whetted your appetite for more. And again, we pray that it will continue to do so for years to come. If you have any questions or concerns, if you would like more detailed assistance in addressing the practical steps necessary to grow in any of the concepts we've studied, please don't hesitate to contact us at counselor at celebrationofgod.com. Also, please take full advantage of the resources available at celebrationofgod.com and make sure you re- uh, to revisit evermindministries.com as we add more ministries that will help keep God's Word and uh, at the center of your daily experience. Of course, please share this series on your favorite social media outlets so that more people can look for the evidences of spiritual life and grow in them. And join us next time as we seek to better know, love, and worship God and help the people in our lives do the same. To that end, we'll be starting the final season of the year-long celebration of God, the season of power. And we're going to start by learning about the power of God. If you want to know God better, celebrate Him more, and help the ones you love to do the same, subscribe to this podcast and visit celebrationofgod.com to learn more about this dynamic discipleship resource. And remember, the Celebration of God is a listener-supported ministry.